welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. On the last weekend of Black History Month, I wanted to take the opportunity to dedicate an entire show to some of the amazing guests who have joined me on What She Said over the last year to share their wisdom and thoughts on everything from protesting safely to teaching kids about racism. I'll be back next week as we kick off a month celebrating women for International Women's Day, because who says we only get a day? So let's get rolling with today's show right now with Heather Greenwood Davis. My name is not important. I'm not from here. I'm imported. I drink liquor like it's water. Hold my liver. Can't afford it. I'm in Heather Greenwood Davis is a contributing editor and on-air storyteller for National Geographic Travel and a feature writer with the Globe and Mail. She is also the voice behind Globetrottingmama.com, an international family travel blog that features the adventure she takes with and sometimes without her husband Ish and their two sons Ethan and Cameron. Her words and opinions on everything from travel to parenting have been featured in O Magazine and NPR. Heather recently wrote an article for National Geographic that focuses on raising anti-racist kids, and that's what we're jumping into today. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thanks for having me. So in a perfect world, it would have been so great if you didn't have to write that article at all. Right. Uh, But these are discussions that are so important. We have to be having them, and not just as a one-off, all the time. Absolutely. So I think what, um, you know, your point is so good because I think we think, oh, oh, okay, something's happening. We need to have the talk, you know, and there's a lot of talk about the talk. And quite frankly, it's an ongoing conversation. It needs to be something. If this is the moment that has alerted you to the fact that the conversation needs to be had, forget about feeling sorry about the fact that you're only now finding it. Forget all that. Start now. That's the point. And if you knew about it a while ago and you've already been having the conversations, work what's happening now into that conversation and continue having the conversation. But, you know, thinking of it as a one-time thing, not a great idea. And I think, you know, in particular, white parents think, well, if I'm talking about or pointing out racist, that makes me racist. Right. Uh, Right. Or, you know, or I'm making it a big deal uh, if if I talk about it. When yeah. The reality is these are conversations you've been having with your, your children yeah. from a very young age. Very young age. And, and really, unlike, you know, the talk that you might think of like a talk for like when you're talking to your kids about sex or something, talking to my kids about me, talking to my kids about race is something that was so just naturally ingrained in our conversations that I can't think of a moment um, where we had the talk, you know, as a black families often talk about the fact that they need to have a conversation with their kids at some point about, you know, interactions with the police, about the fact that they're going to run into racism. And, and that's true. You know, as they get older, you may be having different kinds of conversations, but the very basic conversation about when your kid is like two or three and starts saying, you know, hey, so-and-so's skin is brown and mine looks kind of peachy and, you know, whatever, that is introducing that time to talk about race. And there's absolutely nothing racist inherently about talking about race. Where you run into difficulty is when you add value judgments to those conversations. And what a lot of the experts I've spoken with have talked about is the idea that those value judgments all, all usually come from the adult 
in the conversation. The child then takes them on and carries them forward. So as adults, it's our responsibility to make sure that we understand our own feelings around race and racism so that when we're talking to our kids, we're sending the right messages along. Okay, so let's go through this article a little bit. I'd like to go through sort of, you know, the subheaders that were in the article so we can talk a little bit about each point. You yes. have, uh, be prepared to talk about race-based events. Yes. Um, so obviously, we're dealing with a pretty big one right now. Yeah. So how do you prepare for that conversation? Well, it alludes to what I was saying. So for example, right now we have George Floyd who was murdered by a white police officer in the United States. Those images, because maybe we're all home because of COVID-19, um, because so many people, for some reason, um, this has sort of galvanized social media, traditional media, you know, television shows, the memes your kids are looking at, it's everywhere. The images, the information is everywhere. Black Lives Matter is everywhere. If you're not talking about it, it doesn't mean your kids are not talking about it. So if these things are going on and this provides an impetus for you to, one, either answer your child's questions about it, you better have an answer that looks at the history and context around protest why these protests are happening and you know sort of check yourself like do you believe the protests are wrong and if so why and maybe investigate that a little bit before you speak to your child because i think if you have the history and context you may come to a different uh, a different feeling about that okay so one of the next ones and we touched on this a little bit was watch for statements that link race with value judgments yeah. So, and it's, it's little things. If you suggest that, you know, um, all black people uh, work in a certain area, or if you even just by not even necessarily saying, but if by showing what does your community look like, right? If you were going to gala events and there's no one at the gala who looks like me, you know, people are, that, that's something you're taking in, never mind something that you may be passing along to whoever is accompanying you to those kinds of events. So the idea is as you uh, look at your church, um, as you look at like where you live, what your neighborhood looks like, where you have your um, entertainment, you know, where do you go for those kinds of things? Do you participate in any sort of community activities? All of that, all of that needs to be examined and to see if you sort of align that with certain um, values about what is good and what is not. You know, another place that we can investigate, and I, I think I touch on it later in the article, but um, your media, you know, what does, what do your social media streams look like? And I am not by any way <laughs> suggesting that you should now go out and fill your social media streams with random black people or people of any race, but definitely what you want to do is take a look and say, okay, there's something wrong here if my world looks a certain way and the information streams I'm following look a certain way. And then try to align yourself with people who share your interests, your values, um, you know, the, the things that you like to do, they're doing the same sorts of things. And yeah, if they happen to be people, find people who are of different ethnic backgrounds um, to follow and get information from in that way. And it's just gonna diversify your stream. What you're, you're not trying to shift entirely to now following only you know, black, in my case, black travel writers or what have you, but you definitely want to make sure that if travel's a space you're in, for example, you've got a little bit of everything going in there. Okay, excellent point. Okay, so, um, and so that would cover basically introducing diversity. And um, I thought one of them though was update your home library, which uh, 
you know, that's something that I've taken a hard look at in, in the last, you know, a couple of weeks is sort of what am I reading and whose point of view am I reading it from? Yeah. And when you think about your education, whether it was your primary school education, your high school education, your university education, you know, whose point of view was, was history being told from? You know, who gets to say, and that goes beyond anti-Black racism, right? We're talking about here in Canada, what about Indigenous voices? You know, are you hearing all of the stories from a certain perspective? I think it's really important that we look at that as adults. But when you're talking about children, you're talking about not just, you know, because a lot of what happens often is that we introduce um, Black history through slavery and civil rights, right? And those are important things and shouldn't be excluded from textbooks, but they're also, you know, black people do other things. There's a lot it's of things that they've done. <laughs> they've done millions of other things in between slavery and human rights um, that deserve some attention and recognition. And we do everyday normal things too. Um, so that's always good to look at. So I think when you're looking at the books um, in your home, look also for are there diverse characters? If there are diverse characters, are they being slotted into certain roles? Are the bad guys black, right? Like, look at your, your news stream. Are, you know, when the news cycle comes through and we're talking about criminals, are there certain criminals that seem to be featured in a certain way? You know, we know also that over the years, we've seen a lot of um, terrible things happen um, in the media, in the world in terms of women being attacked or um, you know, school shootings or what have you. And a lot has been made about the fact that even right down to a mugshot, the photo that gets circulated in the media of a white offender versus the photo that may be circulated in the media of a, of a black offender means that sometimes I even open the newspaper and I'm not sure who was the criminal and who was the victim in a situation, just from the photos, it can be really hard to tell. So we have to be really um, intentional about introducing diversity to our kids at a very young age. One of the authors I spoke to was um, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who's written a book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He just released a book called Anti-Racist Baby. It's a board book. It's a board book. It's meant for kids under the age of two. And that's how early they're saying you, we can be addressing these issues. That's excellent. Okay, so if people want to read this entire article, uh, where can they go? So they should go to National Geographic Family. That's where that is. And I've also, I've had some conversations with ABC New York about it, um, which was a Facebook Live. So we got some, some viewer questions. So if they want to sort of get some more around it, I've got that up on my site, which is globetrottingmama.com. Okay, excellent. And if people want to find you on social to, you know, drool all over your travels. <laughs> when we open when they happen again. <laughs> <laughs> where can they go? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Greenwood Davis. On Instagram, I'm at Heather GD. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Heather. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. <laughs> Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
Black Legal Action Center is the only Black-led specialty legal clinic working to combat individual and systemic anti-Black racism in Canada. Joining me today is Ruth Goba, the Executive Director of the Black Legal Action Center, and Nana Yanfel is the Legal Team Lead at the Black Legal Action Center. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank I you. really appreciate your time today. So let's just jump right into it. Quick thoughts. What did you think of uh, Ford saying that systemic racism isn't in Ontario? I thought it was offensive to the Black community, actually, and the Indigenous community and other marginalized communities who every single day deal with the realities of discrimination and disparity and long-standing, um, deep-seated racism that exists in the province. I think that it showed that he really does not have a sense of all of um, the residents of the province that he um, governs. Um, the, yeah, I thought it was really problematic. Um, I thought that um, it, it, it just shows that really um, whatever talk there is in the government right now and even in the area of education where there's lots of talk around anti-black racism and you know the government you know the education minister says you know we want the government to understand the black community to understand we've we've you know we've got this that in reality they don't and that's a really significant problem for us moving forward yeah i think that that, that spoke volumes um to you know that yes systemic racism exists and and he literally proved it by standing up saying it didn't exist it's, it was shocking, actually. Yeah. It was shocking, I it think, to hear him articulate that uh, in the context of everything that's happening right now in our province. It was, a, it was shocking. So we recorded a, a, a longer podcast earlier, and I hope people will go over to the podcast and listen to that. But one of the points that you talked about was uh, the need for disaggregated data. So can you tell me a little bit about what you mean by that? We are not the first ones to call for that. I think our, our community and many um, public health experts, health experts generally have been saying, you know, we need to show the, how things don't affect all of us the same. And what is great about disaggregated race-based data specifically is that then it can show, um, you know, the differential impact of certain measures, right? Right now, we don't collect anything. So we don't know whether or not our community is being disproportionately affected, for example, by COVID-19, right? Even though it is um, a pandemic that can affect us all, we know from looking at the US that it actually, it's not, right? It's, it's killing black people at a disproportionate rate. Um, so we and others have been calling for the collection um, of disaggregated race-based data specifically around uh, COVID health data. The province did say recently, I think it was early May, that they would start to collect. And I hear also the city of Toronto, um, at the Toronto Public Health, they are starting to collect disaggregated race-based data um, in the health data related to COVID. But also our, our organization and others um, are also calling for the collection of disaggregated race-based data across all sectors. Um, so in policing, child welfare, like across the province in all sectors, um, because we know that this data is important. 
I just want to say one caveat about that is we know that having the data also doesn't mean systemic change, right? Um, the U.S. has been collecting data for many years and we still see disproportionalities, right? Um, so it's important that we don't say, okay, when we have the data, the work is over. We need to be able to use that data to continue to push for systemic change and sustainable quality. So um, it's twofold. Yes, collect, but also we need to use that data in a way that pushes forward some real change. So how is the Black Legal Action Centre um, helping then in Ontario? Uh, with respect to data collection or just... Sorry, um, uh, helping in, in your community in general. So what's your mandate and how are you well, uh, helping? Our, our mandate is to... We have a big mandate. Our mandate is to combat individual and systemic anti-Black racism across Ontario. So we provide individual legal support to um, low and no income black Ontarians um, who would other who qualify for legal aid services. Um, but we also work on issues of systemic advocacy. Um, we recently uh, worked in coalition to bring a legal challenge to the failure by the city to ensure social distancing measures in the shelter system. There's a disproportionate number of black people in the shelter system because of high rates of poverty, really. Um, so we, we do um, public legal education. Um, we, as I said, provide individual legal support. We work on issues of community development and we partner with other, other agencies that serve the Black community and people who serve the Black community to provide support where we can to, um, you know, you know, assist, assist them where we can. Um, Nana can probably continue as well a little bit more on the other on the other work that we do. I think you I think you captured it really well. We provide those legal services in, in specific areas of law, um, so housing, education, um, police complaints. Um, what else? <laughs> I'm blanking. Uh, prison law. Prison law. Um, we don't provide services in criminal law, um, family law, or immigration refugee services. So I want to circle back to something we talked about uh, in the podcast, and that was you opened a year ago and you said that you thought, you know, you would be flooded with calls uh, in regards to policing. But what you're most surprised is those calls are actually uh, education based. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about some of those calls you're receiving? Yeah, yeah so we receive calls. Um, you know, we're a, an organization, our offices in Toronto, but we serve the entire province. So we are hearing from parents and young people from across the province, different school boards, um, saying something very similar, that they are uh, treated very differently in the school system by teachers, principals, um, other students because of their race, because they're black. Um, and so, for example, we see that in terms of suspensions and expulsions. So the way that discipline is handed out, um, black students are saying, we, well, we're seeing it actually in, this, in the statistics, um, that black students are overrepresented when it comes to suspensions and expulsions. We're seeing that black students are overrepresented in um, applied level classes and applied level courses as compared to academic courses. And that has an impact on um, post-secondary opportunities and employment opportunities later down the line. Um, and we're also hearing from parents who are trying to advocate for their children every single day um, to ensure that their 
feeling safe at school and ensure that they are treated fairly, um, who are met with sanctions, right? Who are told they can't come back to the school. They're served with trespass orders. Um, and that, you know, that, that's also a concern. So we're hearing from a variety of folks across the province um, and we're hearing very similar themes. And so anti-Black racism in the education system is, is very real. Um, and at, at Black, we are trying to work towards dismantling some of those, some of those practices. So people are listening right now then and they want to get in touch with you. What is the best way to do that? Uh, they can reach us through our website, which is www.blacklegalactioncenter.ca. Um, our phone number is 416-597-5831. We also have a 1-800 number, which is, um, and we have social media handles. Okay, so we're going to put all of those up on the video that's going to go out on social and anybody's listening will have heard that as well. Uh, thank you, ladies, for joining me today. Uh, I wish you continued success in, in, in your uh, mandate. And uh, thank, thank you for you having so us much. on and for shedding a light on this a little bit. So yeah. we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Candice. It was lovely to speak with you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Belonging to any marginalized community is hard, but when your family belongs to several marginalized communities, the stress of all the isms and phobias can be a lot to deal with. Avi Magnuson is a black trans man who has been happily in love with his partner Lainey for 19 years. They are the proud parents of two adult daughters and two sons, aged 13 and 10, who join their family through public adoption. Their blended multiracial family is often chaotic, but always a safe haven. Avi recently had his story published on the Huffington Post titled, What Fatherhood Means to a Trans Dad Raising Black Sons. Welcome to the show, Avi. Thanks very much, Candice. So I guess we'll just start with that question. Uh, what fatherhood means to you raising black sons? Well, you know, it's, there's the gift part of it that is just so wonderful and watching these boys grow. And there's the terror part of it, which is having black sons in this world at this time. Um, so I think it's this, it's trying to um, celebrate the joy, especially around them um, and deal with the fear away from them because I want their childhood to be as carefree as it can be for a young black boy in 2020. How are you explaining this moment in time to them? So we do talk about what's happened. We have talked about, you know, George Floyd, we talked about that a lot. Um, and we said that there is a lot of hate in the world and that there are people who will make assumptions about who you are because of the color of your skin. And sometimes those people have the power to really hurt you. Um, so then we do the talk about what to do in terms of police. Um, but it's hard. I don't know how much they understand. Um, it's very important for me that they do because both of them have, um, um, cycle, uh, disabilities that will put them in contact with the police. So it's very important. 
it's very important for me that they know this because I, I don't want to bury my children. Yeah, and your your children, just so people uh, know, we recorded a longer podcast and I encourage people to go listen to that, but it's important for our listeners to know in this segment that your one son has autism and your other son has fetal alcohol syndrome, Yes, which prevents them, I suspect, from being able to have, um, you know, fully comprehend what would be happening or to maybe not have the um, the tools to have the dialogue that would be needed, correct? Right, right. so they if they are overwhelmed, they often um, have big uh, explosive kind of um, emotions. Uh, They won't remember things. So the stuff that I've told them, they won't remember. Um, One of the younger son, when he's afraid, he gets very angry. Like, so that's how his fear and anxiety manifests. So he will get mouthy and he will be defiant and he will, um, and that's not read as anxiety, right? It might be read as anxiety with a different person, but it won't be read as anxiety with him. So those are the things. And I mean, statistically, kids on the spectrum or who have FASD come into contact with law enforcement much more often than their neurotypical peers do. Right. So as a trans black man, um, you know, you have obviously dealt with a lot of, um, of the phobias and the isms over the years, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so in the role that you play, you work for the Toronto District School Board. I do. Uh, so tell me about that role and how, you know, being a trans black man helps you in that role. So I work in the gender-based violence prevention program at the TDSB and we, myself and my colleague, Alana David, we do a lot of uh, PD, uh, professional development for staff in the area of sexual and gender diversity. So as someone who is a black trans man, I use my own experience to help inform staff because for many staff, they've never met someone who's out in trans. Um, I say to them, ask me all your questions, get all your questions out, ask me. So you don't have to ask, you know, a student in your class or someone else. Um, I say there are no bad questions, but if you're using language that's, you know, um, transphobic or whatever, I'm going to help you correct that. Um, So I think it's, for me, being professionally queer is what I call it. Um, I I get to be an example, and I think I get to be a place where people can deal with some of their fear and anxiety. So, and, and that's okay. Right. So is your, your safe person to come to when you have questions, right. obviously, or concerns. So what do you see uh, the future looking like for this program in a post-COVID world? Well, I don't know, because no one knows what this school year is going to look like in September. My hope is we will somehow be able to be in real life with the young people we work with um, and even doing the trainings, although we could do those online. But I really... You know, I really have always felt that having two people to cover a school board that has, I don't know, 250,000 students is a lot. Um, And certainly we could use the school boards divided into four sections and we could use at least one person in each section doing this because then you get connected to the schools and the staff and, you know, you're available as opposed to doing triage, which is what it feels like. You know, there's a crisis at one school because they're doing an overnight trip. And what do they do with the trans kid and where do they sleep? Um, And sometimes that 
means that you don't get to do a training or you don't get to meet with a student who's just coming out and is afraid to, you know, talk to their parents. So yeah, right. we need more of us is what we need. <laughs> yes, you do. And I, I, I agree. We talked a little bit about that as well, uh, more in depth, but if people want to um, show their support or, you know, encourage the, uh, the school board to, you know, broaden this program, what do you suggest? I mean, I say start at the top. You can talk to the director of education, talk to your school trustee, um, talk to your school principal. Um, like, I think that there has to be someone who's more than us saying this program needs more people and we need, we, we need to be focusing on this in a particular way. So, you know, school trustees are always a good place to start. MPs and MPs, MPPs, they're always good places to go. So. Okay. Okay. Avi, I thank you so much for joining me to share just a little bit, a tiny bit of your story. It is very, uh, you know, uh, it's a big story. So I encourage people to go read the Huffington Post article. We're going to link to it when we share this video on social, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Candice. It was wonderful. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Making a sign, showing up, and taking a stand for your beliefs is one way to show your kids and your community what anti-racism work looks like. Doing it safely, however, is an entirely different matter, especially right now. Joining me to discuss is Samantha Kemp-Jackson, a successful writer, media commentator, public speaker, and podcaster. Since 2011, Sam has been heard as a frequent syndicated parenting expert for CBC Radio, with segments broadcast nationally throughout the year. In addition, she's also a weekly national panelist on CTV News Channel on a segment called Behind the Headlines with veteran journalist Beverly Thompson, a role she's held since 2017. You can also catch her on her popular podcast, Parenting Then and Now. Welcome to the show, Samantha. Oh, thanks for having me, Candice. It's so good to have you back. I always love discussing things with you, but this in particular, this topic really interested me. Um, You know, it was around this time last year that I was attending the climate rally um, Mm -hmm. with my children. And it feels like we've just been in this cycle of protests since then. Yeah, you know, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if, you know, the galaxy is in retrograde or what. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a lot of strange things going on. And it seems like it's all kind of culminated now with, uh, you know, not only climate, but unfortunately, a lot of racial tension and strife. And, you know, the, the positive thing, though, I think about this whole thing is that people are using their voices, families are using their voices, and they are getting out there uh, and protesting and making their their Um, feelings heard and they're including their kids which I think is a good thing yeah you know it's interesting you know uh, growing up I mean I I believe you're Gen X as well I'm Gen X and and Mm -hmm. growing up you know protests were just something that were not in my wheelhouse I mean we really I guess didn't have anything to protest (laughs) yeah no you know we we didn't really or if even if we did I think that protesting per se was perceived to be the within the realm of the radical people uh you know 
they were either radical if they were protesting or they were hippies or back in the 70s when I was a kid, they used to call them pinkos, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, I think that in light of recent events and, and the world, the reality of the world that we're living in, uh, I think it's mandatory and necessary now that we make our voices heard if we, do, if we want things to change and we don't want the status quo to remain. Right. And I think that we're, what's going to happen now is that these protests are going to become more frequent. Uh, we're going to see more of them about Black Lives Matter, about climate. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of things at play here. So let's talk about, we obviously we want our, kill, our children to be involved. We want, to, want them to understand their voices matter. Um, but how do we do it safely? And is there an age that we should be considering bringing them down to? Um, let's start with all of that. Well, you know, first of all, I'd say that, you know, is it ever too early to learn about the injustices that are going on in the world? Now, obviously, we can't speak to a, an infant or a two-year-old about, you know, the intricacies of racism and race relations, but we can certainly show our children that we are taking a stand uh, in terms of something that we believe is important. And I've seen many parents do such such things uh, as taking their infants and their young children to protest. And you're going to see more and more this, Candace, uh, as time goes by and as we see more things changing within our society and things being brought to light that were um, previously not seen because we didn't have video footage or cell phone footage like we have uh, ubiquitously now. Um, so I would say the first thing to do is uh, for parents who are considering doing this to, to just do your research. So look into what the event is. So first of all, what are you protesting? If it's uh, in line with what your values are and something that you feel very strongly about, well, that's great. That's the first step. But look into who is organizing it. So are the organizers people or institutions that have uh, a footprint within uh, the protesting realm. So is this their first rodeo or have they done this many times? If it's the latter, then certainly they, they know what to anticipate, how to get all of the variables in place so that people remain safe, how to have some, you know, um, uh, how to have the supports that are there that they would require if there are going to be large crowds. I would also say, you know, look into perhaps start starting small and, and going big. So, you know, if you this is your first time taking your family out to a protest, then certainly start with one that's perhaps more local, one that's perhaps in an area that you're familiar with, one that is perhaps not as large. So if it's something that you know is going to have, you know, you know, thousands of people. Now, certainly right now, that's not going to happen because we're in the midst of a pandemic. But were it normal times, you know, I would say to, you know, start small and then get bigger as you go, as you get more comfortable and you're more aware of, of what to anticipate at these events. Right. You know, I, you know, I remember taking my daughters down to um, the Women's March when um, Trump was elected. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was a, it was a, you know, it brought a lot of women together. It felt very um, inviting. But as we were marching, we did come across some people who were, um, you know, obviously anti-women, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, which was interesting because it opened up a conversation, obviously, for my daughters and I to have. But further, I think about, you know, these protests now, because, you know, uh, especially Black Lives Matter, when I look at the States, and mm-hmm. people are showing up 
to incite violence um, and and to um, to fight back. Uh, what? How do we keep our kids safe in that matter? So, like, what are, are there things we should be looking for? Um, is there is there a place we should stay, perhaps, in the protest uh, to avoid that kind of confrontation? Well, those are really good questions, Candace. What I would say first and foremost, and you're a mother and I'm a mother and, you know, there are fathers who do the same thing. Um, I, I tend to, uh, if when I'm with young children and when my children were very young, I would always be looking for an exit. <laughs> um, and that would be for safety reasons, but also for practical reasons. Because as you know, young kids, you know, they have issues. They might decide that, you know, they're going to have a, a meltdown or they might decide that they have to go to the bathroom right then and there. So I I think that the same kind of goes for any type of protest that you're going to go to, especially or particularly with younger children. Just make sure you're aware of where you are. So know your surroundings, know where um, you need to exit to if you need to exit exit quickly. And, you know, I think it's probably not a bad idea to kind of remain on the periphery of things. So I wouldn't get right in the midst of a large crowd. Now, again, this is, you know, speaking from the perspective of, um, considering that we're back to normal times where it's, it's, you know, not, not a pandemic right now, it's going to be a little bit different because if you are going to protest, you would need to physically distance and you would need to make sure that you are protected wearing masks and that type of thing. But, you know, know where you can, you know, kind of get out of the thick of things if you need to also stay, you know, kind of near the edges, not into the midst of things. Um, And I think, you know, again, as I I know, I've said this before, but really doing that research and determining who is actually organizing this particular event, because I think that's going to, um, that's going to color the type of event it's going to be. Is it going to be, you know, largely positive? Is it going to be largely, you know, older people with kids? Is it going to be largely younger people? You know, so doing that research is going to inform whether or not you feel it's the best place to go with your children. And I just want to touch on something briefly, because you wrote about this in today's parent, and I encourage everybody to go read this article uh, in its entirety. But one of the things you mentioned was to look for a large police presence. Mm -hmm. What does that indicate? If there, and this is based on the expert that I quoted uh, in the article, if there is a large police present before anything even occurs, that might be an indicator that there is uh, some, um, you know, possible confrontation that is going to be anticipated. And if there's going to be a confrontation, whether or not it's verbal and then progressing to physical, you don't want to have that when you have children with you. So if you do see a large police presence or you hear in advance that, you know, you know, large sectors of the police are mobilizing at this particular event, then that might be your cue to say, you know, maybe I'll pass on this one and I'll go to the next one because that usually indicates that okay things are are probably not going to go uh, too positively if if you know if that many uh, law enforcement people are are planning on making themselves known okay wonderful Samantha thank you so much for joining me this was very informative I really appreciate it and uh, we'll have you back soon great thanks for having me Candace it's always fun felt like you don't belong somewhere or if you fear your colleagues colleagues are going to discover you're a fraud and undeserving of what you've attained you've likely had a bad case of imposter syndrome 
Never fear, according to one study, an estimated 70% of us suffer from imposter syndrome at some point in our life. BBG Hiley is the founder of speakeasy.org, a career management and personal branding consultancy company. She works with women in middle and senior management roles, helping them make bold moves in their lives and careers as they discover the possibilities that come with finding and owning their unique voice. Welcome to the show, BBG. Thank you, Candice. I'm happy to be here. It's so great to have you here. Uh, I, I feel like imposter syndrome is something a lot of women struggle with. I mean, when I went and looked it up and found 70% of us at some point uh, deal with this, that's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And it's interesting because the last workshop I did on imposter syndrome, when I threw out that number, the 70%, I remember looking at the chat and everybody's, oh my God, I'm not alone. And so I was telling these women, you know what? Do the math. When you go into a room and you're feeling imposter syndrome, do the math. If there are 10 people in there, it means seven of them, regardless of their organizational level, are feeling the same thing as you. So that helps bring us back, right? We're not going to lose it, but it'll bring us back a little bit. So is is imposter syndrome a confidence issue then? Is it a lack of self-confidence or does it stem from something else? It's so it's not so much a lack of confidence, but it does. It is interpreted by the people who are living it as a lack of confidence. A lot of the time what happens with imposter syndrome is that it's actually women and men, because this is one of those. It doesn't actually matter what gender you are. Um, Everybody feels it in the same way, but it's the way that it comes out and the way that it shows up that's different. And it's an attribution issue. So women who are extremely accomplished, they, they know what they're doing, they're competent, they, they've succeeded. Usually they have like pretty successful careers, but they attribute their success to luck, to the team, to um, hard work, but they don't attribute it to their own competence and skills. And so after that, the interpretation comes with, I don't feel confident. I'm not self-confident. If I was self-confident, I would be able to own this. Right. I think, and I think that is, um, when you're, as you're speaking, I'm nodding and smiling here because, you know, I, I, I think a lot of women in particular struggle with this. You know, they have the skill set, but they're afraid to be bold about that skill set and and to say yeah I, I have i'm here because i deserve to be here yeah yeah and you know it so we have to be bold about our specific skill set i think that's where we get stuck we're trying to take on so much be so good about so many things but when you focus on self-awareness and figure out what's your zone where is it that you are extremely good What comes with it is knowing where you're not extremely good. And so you sort of lose this feeling that you have to show up as a superstar in every space. I am horrible at planning and at follow-ups. And I used to do project management. And so I would have, I had these project plans and literally it felt like they were a foreign language. And when I realized the first time I did a strength finder and I realized that all of my strength, Candace, all of them were in the strategic space, the ideas, the visioning, I cried. I was like, so I'm not bad at what I do. I'm bad at this thing. And now I just delegate. Every time there is something that needs to be managed, followed up, I tell people I'm not good at this, have someone else do it. This is what I'm good at. 
Okay, so let's talk about that for a second then, because you said, uh, you know, doing uh, something to find your strengths. So what do you recommend women do? Where do you start when you want to focus on, on really finding out what your core competencies are? A couple of things. There are some things that are just very structured. I use Strength Finder, the Gallup Strength Finder. It's very useful. Um, you can think of it like an MBTI, but I think it's it's more focused because it focuses on your strength at work and it's divided into areas. So strategic versus execution versus relationships. Super useful. The other thing that I have people do is think about the moments that they are in flow. Because we always think that doing something well means it has to be hard. It's the opposite. Doing something well is those things that are so easy for you that you're not even able to call them something that you're good at. You're like, yeah, I know I do that thing. It's, isn't it easy for everybody? No. Some people, it's super easy to do a follow-up. They can follow a, a, an Excel spreadsheet that tells them what to do. And for me, it gives me anxiety. So when you find that thing that you're in flow, when you think about how you feel in your body, when you're like, for me, it's facilitating a meeting. If you're like, huh, this is my space. I could do this all day. That gives you an, an inkling of your strength. Third tip I would give them, think about three words to describe yourself. If you could only have three words, what would they be? And you can't use one of those that we use, accomplished professional. Can't do that. Find your three words. And I think you have to be in the right headspace as well when you're asking those three words. Uh, you know, you don't want to be in this negative space and, you know, really using those words that are not maybe very uh, encouraging positive, right? It's that self-talk is important. I'm so glad you brought that up. So all of my clients, I ask them to be careful of the words they use when they talk to themselves. You know, we say a lot that women are harsh with ourselves, et cetera, but one of the things that we do is use words that are very difficult. So for instance, we'll say, I'm so stupid. And there's this sentence that says your brain is always listening, right? If you're constantly telling yourself, oh, I'm so, so stupid, I'm such an idiot. When you go into a room and get triggered by people who make you feel like an idiot, for whatever reason, your brain is already used to hearing and feeling that way. So being careful with the words that we use to talk to ourselves is critical. Self-compassion is critical. It sounds like woo, but it is the only way to manage the process um, of, you know, succeeding at our life and our being joyful in our life. Yeah, I, I really wish people would let go of that, that uh, perception that these sort of things are woo-woo. It's, it's really not. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you say that being friends with your fear is a good thing. So how do, you, how do you manage that? How do you become friendly with your fear? Observation. Literally observation. And it's part of the self-awareness. Understanding what your triggers are. So when you and I were communicating and in our email, I said I prefer to be addressed as BB. The reason I prefer to be addressed as BB is because when somebody calls me BBG, it triggers me back to when I was a child and I had done something wrong and my parents would say, BBG, and then, you know, get, get upset. And so literally I get triggered like that in meetings. And so it's about knowing our triggers, knowing what creates that space of fear and discomfort so that we can observe it. 
And that gives us a moment to slow down, right? We are in a, in a world and in a workplace where things are going so fast. We get triggered, we react, and then we go back and think, oh, I'm so stupid, I can't believe I just said that. Versus observing and seeing what's going on and being, oh, the imposter syndrome is here. Have a seat, I'm doing something, I'll be right back. Or with the fear, same thing, have a seat. You can observe as you want. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, but please feel free. So it's adding humor and compassion and observation to how we show up in the world and lessening the expectations. So how are you finding all of this now? Obviously, we are eight months into this pandemic and, and the need for you know, the self-compassion is greater than ever. Uh, how are you helping women right now? Community. Community. I'm doing a virtual coffee tour where I have conversations with women all over the world. And one of the things that keeps coming up as what is necessary for women to thrive is community. So right now I have a LinkedIn group. I'm training women on LinkedIn, which is a fantastic way to learn how to show up. And I realized that it's not about LinkedIn. It's about all these women together having these amazing conversations, holding each other up, and more importantly saying, oh my God, me too. They're not alone. They're all living this. And then the kids will pop in, the toddlers. My toddler is not here today, but he pops into the videos. And he, it's just, this is who we are. This is how we're living now. And let's do it as a community and hold each other up. Well, you are singing my song. That is what she says here for, uh, is, to, is to create this community with women. Uh, especially, uh, you know, I've been hearing this since the first week uh, that we went into lockdown, these stories. So I think creating this community is vitally important. If people want to connect with you, uh, Bibi, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm a bit of a LinkedIn junkie. So BBG Haile at LinkedIn. Um, my website is being revamped, but they can go on it and get um, uh, sign up for our newsletter. And yeah, that's it. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, Bibi. We will talk again soon. I hope so, Candice. Thank you so much. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. She's just a girl and she's on fire. Hotter than a fantasy. Lonely like a highway. She's living in a world and it's on fire. It's been said that change is the only constant in life. And I think we can all agree the change has been constant this year. How we adapt to change is what changes our lives, though. Yvonne Aquaveta is a change management strategist, change leadership advocate, and the founder of The Change Leadership. She is also a published author and motivational speaker. Her book, Change Your Mindset, Change Your Life, outlines actionable tips for individuals to drive change in their lives. Yvonne, you definitely sound like the right woman to talk to right now in light of all of this change. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great to be on here. So how are you helping? Because you, you know, you typically go out and you advise with companies and you help leaders, but you're also uh, speaking directly to a lot of just women right now who are dealing with all of this. And mm -hmm. what are you telling them? 
Oh gosh, it could be varying because I deal with women who are trying to lead change in the organization. And I am also dealing with women who are going through change in their careers and their personal lives. Oh gosh, I always say one thing, start with self-awareness. That's the one thing I say, start with self-awareness because in order to be able to lead or drive change, whether at work or in your personal life, you need to understand you, your strengths, your weaknesses, what's holding you back and where it is you want to go. So that's the starting point, self-awareness. Yeah. And you know, so are there exercises or is there something you help people so they can establish that self-awareness? I mean, where do you even begin with that if it's not something you're really strong at? Yeah. So there's this exercise, it's called the Johari window, which helps you, your known self. So what you know about yourself. But there's also what you call your unknown self, things you don't know about yourself. And that's where it comes into speaking with people. What's the feedback people are giving you? But you, first of all, you have to be sure about who you're getting feedback from because people have different perspectives. So think about trusted sources in terms of, you know, to share with you what they think of you. There are online assessments too that you can take to find out about your personality and what it is that you're doing. Only yesterday, a friend asked me, how can I do some um, tests around emotional intelligence, <laughs> which is really important as a skill right now, emotional intelligence, whether you're leading change at work, driving change in the workspace, or even yourself in terms of how you lead and respond to change, emotional intelligence is important. And there are assessment tools out there that can help you identify your strengths and weaknesses. Okay, so you say that we all have the capacity to be change leaders. So what does that look like to be a leader? Yes. So the first thing that we, uh, the first misconception that a lot of people have is they see leadership or leaders as a title or position to say, I have to be in this management position. I have to have this amount of people reporting to me to be seen as a leader, but that's management. That's not leadership. So we all have that capacity to be leaders in our sphere of influence, you know, whether it's at home, because we have people who are reliant on us, whether in the community as part of a volunteering, um, volunteering opportunity or whether at work. So to be a change leader encompasses what I call, I teach on 10 skills or 10 competences. And some of them include how you apply empathy, includes emotional intelligence, how you work with other people. It's really about the ability to be able to bring people on board towards a specific goal. So, you know, and you're doing it at home every day. <laughs> you have Well, to I really love that differentiation you just made between management and leadership. That's, that's huge to understand the difference between those two things. Um, and I really liked as well that you mentioned empathy. I think we're lacking a lot of that right now. So mm -hmm. how are there, is there, are there ways you tell people how to um, bring more empathy into their life? Again, is this something that you um, can, can practice ways to, to put more of it out there and receive yeah. more? Yeah, so the first thing I always try to differentiate for people is when we talk about empathy, it's differentiating between emotional empathy and cognitive empathy. So emotional empathy tends to be what some people would say quite dangerous, whereby you try to feel what somebody else is feeling. So that's where, because I'm a mother, I can kind of empathize with somebody else who is a mother, you know, or because I'm a man, I can empathize with somebody who's a man going through certain things. But empathy is really the ability to understand where someone is coming from. That's cognitive empathy, and that's the best to have. And that comes from being able to 
listen that comes from being able to connect with people and when i say listen actively listen because sometimes we're not really listening are we <laughs> we're listening to respond to the situation but actively listen to someone if they're how they're responding their hand movements their eyes their you know their body language you know what they're not saying so when you start to connect with somebody at a deeper level and you start to understand their perspective where they're coming from why may why perhaps are they resisting the change how do we work those resilience into some of these really upsetting changes we're looking at because not all changes you know you've got a promotion and uh, or you're moving to a new city some changes you've lost a job uh you know uh you've got upset in your family how do we adapt to those changes oh that's where mindset comes in mindset is a big part of it so you like you rightly said there are all types of changes positive and negative and there are some negative ones we've really gone through like losing somebody losing a job all that or changing cities so it's first coming to that acceptance to say i have control of this situation because the first thing we feel is helplessness right we feel as if it's out of our control. I cannot do anything about it. So the first is accepting that this is a situation and looking for the silver lining. It's easier said than done. But for me, I, I was just sharing today that when I have so many issues going on in my mind and I feel I don't have control over, the first thing I do is write it out. Just write it out. So that's a release of energy, a release of negative energy when you're able to write it down. Then when I write that thing out, then I in the position to start to look at it very logically to say, how can I turn this situation around? What options are available to me? You know, if I've lost my job, what can I do differently even? Because one of the things that we're finding is if we have that mindset, which is just called, I lost my job as an admin assistant and I have to find another job as an admin assistant, it's, you know, tunnel vision. You know, we start to look, what are the different options available to me? What's the Again, what's the silver lining? Let's turn that negative situation around into a positive situation to see how can I, you know, deal with this situation. And also, you know, bring in an army of people around you. I actually do have this thing I do whereby I don't know them personally, but I start to think about people who are experts in different fields. And when I'm going through a situation, I start to say, what would they do? This is my council of experts. What would this person do? What would that person do? And just start to open my mind to new opportunities. I love that council of experts. I certainly, <laughs> you know, if I was to actually amass all of the women that I've spoken to over the last year on what she, she said, I would have such a great range of experts <laughs> to lean on. So tell me about your book then, um, Change Your Mindset, Change Your Life. Where can people find that? And, and do you offer in there, again, a, is this full of ways for people to really start to adapt to the changes in their life? Yeah, so there are two things I have to help people. So I have the Mindset One, which is a great book, and it shares about 21 various strategies that can help you change your mindset and change your life from your environment to, you know, um, things like how you think through situations to what's holding you back, barriers, and how you overcome those things. So that's really great from moving because what mindset does is if we don't change our mindset or have a shift in our mindset, for every goal or every step we take forward, we will always have a step, one step backwards. So that's a great book for anyone just struggling to try to think, how can I reposition myself to move forward? And then we also offer the Change Leadership Accelerator. So this is really good for professionals, you know, professional women who are thinking, how can I 
position myself as a change leader at work. So that's another one that is available. So we have the book, like you asked, available on Amazon, you know, worldwide, it's available there. And for the Change Leadership Accelerator, we have that on, they can find it on oliveblue.com or they can just reach out to me and I'll send out the link, you know. Okay, and where can they find you on social media? Oh, LinkedIn, search with my name. I'm on LinkedIn, that's the first place to connect with me, but I'm also available on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all of it, but LinkedIn is my go-to. Okay, so uh, just quickly then, what's your handle on Instagram so we can put that up? On my the handle is Olive Blue Ink. Olive so Blue Ink. Live, yeah, Olive Blue Ink. That's it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Yvonne. This was great. Thank you for having me on What She Said. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.